anything. Don't feel bad if Greek isn't your first home, your heart language. Boy, some of those names are hard. I uh, originally titled the message, and you can see it in the bulletin, uh, Making Disciples and Skeptics. Then I thought that was a little misleading. We don't want to make skeptics. Making disciples of skeptics uh, here. Um, if we look at one of the farther points from uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's someone who's going to be skeptical and, and, and uh, either hostile or indifferent to the gospel. And so uh, this morning, uh, we're not going to ignore that and just go to people who um, uh, you know, are, are, are ready to be saved, but we're going to talk about this morning from the scriptures, um, taking people to the Lord Jesus Christ who may be uh, uh, skeptics this morning. A few years ago, I um, stayed with a friend in Virginia who had been a, a friend in college, um, and uh, he had a great love for the game of chess. How many of you know how to play chess? I doesn't mean you're good at it, but you know how to play it. But quite, a, quite a few of you. Um, my dad taught me when I was young, and um, I was never really good at it. Um, he was really not good at it. And so when I started beating him, then he stopped playing me. And then that doesn't mean I was good at it. That means that he was really bad at it. And so after that, then I, you know, played other people and I never really got much better because I didn't really, I wouldn't have the patience to, to, to do that. Um, but my friend Alex uh, Youngblood was a, is a, just loved chess and was very good at it. And he would, you know, read books in the library and openings. Different openings that chess have, and, and um, he got me kind of reinterested in it. And so we found this app on our phones where we could play chess um, at different times uh, and make a move, and then wait for the next person to make a move. And uh, anyway, um, so whenever I, whenever, I remember Alex had free time, I'd see these notifications pop up on my phone that Alex moved from A1 to you know B3 or whatever, and uh, and we and I'd play, and and I only beat him uh, one time. He was very good. We played lots of games, and then we kind of uh, stopped, um, probably because it wasn't fun to him anymore, um, though it was challenging to me. But uh, have you ever seen a master chess player, even maybe heard of or familiar with a master chess player here? Um, sometimes they have simultaneous expo- exhibitions where they have a, a set of games where one man is playing multiple opponents at a time. And he's, like, he's, he's on a chair that, that is mobile, and so make the move here, and then a quick move to this, this game, and he'll make the move here against that person, etc. here. And usually uh, the, the players are seated in a row or circle, and the master circles the players. He's making moves against each opponent before he moves on to the next. And this guy in the picture, his name is Asan Gaim Mahimi. He's a nine-time Iranian champion, and he played a staggering 604 simultaneous opponents at one time. Claimed the world record. If you beat that, I guess then you, you beat his record here. Out of those 604, he won 580 of those games. He tied 16 and he lost 8 in Tehran, Iran. It took place in February in 2011. Pretty, pretty amazing. But then, but then there's this guy I found here. And I don't know if he's Ukrainian or if he's uh, Russian, but one of the most remarkable feats in chess is the blindfold game. And in a blindfold game, the player is not allowed to look at the board, but his opponents are, or her opponents are. 
And they have to hold their uh, uh, entire position and memory of based where the, where the board is and think of it like a graph in their heads where they moved and the other player is here. Uh, um, and, and, and what happens in a simultaneous blindfold ex- exposition is, is, is just amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a staggering feat of chess scale, but also someone's got to have some kind of a, a memory and picture. And this guy's name is Timur Garyev, and he set a new world record for this kind of format in December 2016. He played 48 opponents blindfolded. He was blindfolded. They weren't. At one time, and out of those 48 games, he, he won 35 of them. He tied 7 of them, and of course then he lost only 6 of those games. That's pretty amazing. And a a master chess player is someone who no matter who comes up against them, they look at the game in such a way and they're able to play the game in such a way that it doesn't matter what that person's strengths are and how they open or how they open, they're able to overcome. They're able to overcome. And this morning, I want to encourage you in the power of the Word of God because the Word of God is like a master chess player. It can defeat any worldview. And it can win any person to Jesus Christ. It is total truth. It is the the sum of all truth. And any truth that the world speaks, or any truth that the world operates by, whether that would be a donkey, like in like in the story of Balaam, or whether that would be uh, Caiaphas in the Scriptures who speak a truth that John says, you didn't realize what you're speaking this, that one man should die for the whole nation. But you're right. No matter what truth is spoken or operated by, that the world operates by, they have borrowed from God. They have taken from God and His Word. And ultimately, they will have to concede defeat to Him. And I want to tell you this because I want you to understand here, in the process of making disciples, we live in a culture where there are more people who are either indifferent or skeptical to Jesus Christ than before. Where Jesus might not even be on their radar, might not even know some of the basics that some of us were able to assume in past generations and years here. But I want you to understand that the Word of God is total truth. And we are armed with that as we make disciples among even the skeptics. Among even the skeptics. So, uh, Ethan uh, read Acts chapter 17, and I think we could take this passage and say that this is a group of people who had no knowledge of Jesus and either were indifferent to it or, I think very clearly, they at least had a hand up and were pushing back against it. And the Word of God is able to take account for to be the master worldview. It is the master chess player that the Holy Spirit uses that can win people to God. Now I want you to understand that when we engage with skeptics, we are not doing so to win arguments. But we are doing so, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Why? So that Jesus is glorified, and we do this out of a, 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 a humility, but we do not do this out of a humility that shrinks back. We do this out of a humility that is bold. And so when we look at Acts chapter 17, what we're going to see is Paul is one of these people who because his mind is filled with the Word of God, and in this sermon in the book of Acts, this message that he speaks, it is saturated with, with truths from the Old Testament. His mind is so filled with the Word of God, he sees the world through the grid of God's truth, that he is able to interact with people wherever they are as the master missionary. 
uh, not because Paul was great, but because the Lord had poured into his heart the Word of God and the truths of God's Word. And Paul understood that in God's Word, we have total truth. And it is able to, under, uh, to, to withstand any objections and provide the answers, uh, uh, the, the basic questions of why we exist um, that, than, than any other um, so-called uh, worldview. Now, uh, in Acts chapter 17, you can get a little background information in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, but Paul has just finished Thessalonica. He has gone to the city of Athens. He's going to kind of uh, refresh there. I think that's the setting there. He's got to refresh there after some three weeks or so with, in Thessalonica where there's some severe persecution. And he's going to refresh there. And, and, and he's, he's probably wandering around the city. And if we're going to understand how we're going to engage with skeptics, I think there are several things that we can see from this passage that apply to Paul that will apply to us as well as we engage with skeptics. First of all, I want you to see in Acts chapter 17 that Paul saw, Paul felt, Paul did, and Paul said. And as you understand these truths here, there are direct applications for us as we engage with the lost and specifically engage with those who have no uh, 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 foundation of who God is or the wrong understandings of who God is. It doesn't matter. Uh, as we follow this pattern, we'll be able to gauge as we lean upon the Holy Spirit in Scripture here and we, and we, and we, and we gain uh, more and more understanding of what God has declared in His Word. We'll, we, we will not need to have any fear. Not need to have any fear as we engage with skeptics, no matter how intelligent they may be. <clears throat> now, as Paul ministers here, I want you to see, first of all, what he saw. What he saw. And so the challenge for us is to see. Is to see. Now, notice in Acts chapter 17 <clears throat> and verse 15. And they that conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a commandment to Silas and Timothy for, to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw. When he saw the city wholly or totally, completely given to idolatry. Now, what did Paul see? He's obviously talking about his physical eyes. He saw something, right? But because Paul had the Spirit of God in him and Paul had turned to a new perspective by God's power and by God's grace in the Gospel of Jesus Christ and how God views the world, Paul didn't just see, Paul saw. Here's what he would have seen with his own eyes as he would have come off the harbor in Athens and entered the city through one of the, the, the northwest gates uh, and saw the wall that surrounded the city that had a circumference of five to six miles. He may have felt in awe. He may have been impressed with the architecture and the grandeur of the buildings from this center of Greece here. He may have seen a, a, a temple dedicated to the god, uh, the goddess Athena built about 500 years before. He may have seen what's called the Stoa of Attalus, a two story building with colonnades here, uh, uh, gifted to the city 150 years before. He may have seen the magnificent Parthenon, which is a huge temple that sits across one of the hills in the city. The Acropolis is a crown. It measures all, uh, uh, almost as long as a football field long by about a third of a football field long. And it has columns that, have, that, that stand 34 feet high and a diameter at the bottom of 6 feet. Those are some of the things he would have seen. 
He would have seen a, a, a limestone plateau called the Acropolis that this temple was on, uh, which 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 was about a thousand feet uh, 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 large at the top and about 500 feet high. He would have seen all kinds of temples uh, dedicated to the worship of Athena and Poseidon and Nike and, and in even a roofed gateway that you would walk through on the west side of the city. He takes in all these things and then he goes to what's called the Agora, the marketplace. This would be like going to um, the, the, the mall. This would be like going to... Well, we don't really have malls anymore, do we? Everybody gets stuff from Amazon. Uh, this would be like going to the, 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 the Times Square. Um, this, this, was, this, was, this was where everybody gathered. This was where people sold things. This was where people talked and debated here. And he would have walked in there. And there in the middle of the, of the market, there would have been a 40-foot octagon structure that, hold, that held a water clock and a sundial called the Tower of the Winds because there were, there were carved uh, items on that that represented the eight winds of the world. He would have seen a statue 40 foot tall um, that would have been seen from 40 miles away as it glistened in the sun. These are the things that Paul saw, but what did he see? What did he see? Those are the things he saw with his eyes, but what struck him is what he saw with his heart. What struck him is what he saw with his heart. Um, <clears throat> Paul said, uh, Luke, Luke records, uh, his spirit was stirred and when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. It's, that word wholly given is, the, is a word that's not used in the original language anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, and, it's, and, it, and it's never been found so far in any other Greek writings here. And, and it's the idea of being full of idols or smothered with idols or swamped by them. So that's what he sees with his spiritual eyes. He sees the beauty, but he sees the need. And so that's the second part of what I want us to understand. Paul didn't just see, he felt. He felt. His spirit, verse 16, was stirred in him. So here's what he saw with his heart. He had a stirred heart. What, what was he stirred about? Well, it wasn't like he was walking around like this, stupid idols, you know, just spitting and sputtering the whole time. His heart is overwhelmed because he has a heart that is that it, that lives for God's glory. And he sees these things that people have erected in the place of God's glory. The truth they have exchanged for a lie. And he understands that uh, uh, if, if he has things to see with his physical eyes, then he has things to see with his spiritual heart. And he has a stirred heart for God's glory because he wants to see God in His rightful place. Hallowed be your name. And you could kind of picture it like you would in your marriage, right? Uh, if you walked into your house and someone else was with your spouse in a way that you know would not be appropriate, you would be rightly jealous, wouldn't you? Uh, because that intruder has no right to be there. And that's how Paul saw idolatry. God, who says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols in the book of Isaiah. Our Creator, our Redeemer, has the right to exclusive allegiance here. And, 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 and we need to share God's jealousy for His glory. Elijah, at the time when his country was turning away from God in apostasy, said this, I had been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
Paul said to the, to the Corinthians who were walking away uh, back to their old ways, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He longed for them to be loyal to Jesus. And Paul understands the, the way that men have been created to have fellowship with God. And he sees these things that lead to death and destruction and, 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 and trafficking and, and, and the, the sin that comes out of it here. And Paul is stirred in his heart for God's glory. Friends, lest you think Paul is just sitting there seething, I want you to understand that he is also operating out of compassion. Because he is not just shaking his fist at these idols here. He understands God's purpose for man. God created man to have fellowship with. To be his image bearers. To be his representative. And so Paul responds in compassion because he wants them to know the truth of how you can return to the one true God. You think of Jesus in Matthew 10. As he looked out over Jerusalem, he looked out over the people, he looked out over, probably would have seen the white turbans from the hillside down in the city here, looking at from the hillside down the city, in the white turbans, and then over here seeing the, the, the fields of barley that were ready with the white tops here, and he looks at those mass, the mass of people, and he looks at the fields of barley, and he says, these people are ripe on the harvest. And he has compassion for the people. And he wants them to understand that he's the good shepherd. And these are people wandering about with no purpose in life. Not wandering according to the purpose that God created them for. As people without a shepherd. He looks at Jerusalem and he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. There is, a, there is compassion here. Paul has the same compassion in Ephesians 4, verse 17. He talks about the Gentiles who are vain in their minds, empty in their minds as far as their understanding about God. They are alienated from the life of God. Uh, he talks in 2 Corinthians 4 about how if we hide our gospel, we're hiding the very life of God from people. And he saying he describes the people in their natural state away from God are people who have been blinded by the prince of the power of the air. The God of this world has blinded their minds. And while every single individual is culpable and responsible for how they have turned away from God, how they go their own way for their own sin, Paul also understands the influence of evil and the evil one here. And so he is compassionate here. And he sees the city which is full of idols. And we say, man, what a nasty place. All these primitive idols, right? I want to tell you, remind you, that there are many sophisticated idols as well, aren't there? What makes people tick? What we substitute for God for satisfaction? What what occupies the place that God should occupy is an idol. Paul even says in one of his letters, covetousness is idolatry. Fame, wealth, power, sex, food, drugs, parents, spouse, Children, friends, work, recreation, television, possessions, life without God. Idols do just seem to be in cities where people gather, seem to be more obvious, but idols can also be subtle and sophisticated. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem that would not repent. Paul looks at this city of Athens here and his spirit is stirred. The word is provoked here by the idolatrous cities of the new contemporary of that of that world. And can we say that our our hearts are stirred 
for God's glory and our hearts are stirred in compassion for the lost, including those who may shake their fist against God. Paul saw and Paul felt. Notice, Paul did. There's a doing here that happens out of this. Because of what God is doing in his heart, he can't sit still. And so here's what he does. Notice what happens in verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Paul goes to his natural circles of relationships here. He's a Jew. He would have been familiar with the synagogue. That's where he goes first. And he finds the Jewish people there in Athens and he uh, disputes with them. The word dispute there uh, is a word that has to do with uh, involve, uh, a dialogue involving questions and answers. So probably with the Jewish synagogue there, um, Paul uh, went through the Old Testament Scriptures, so Jesus is the Christ, and that he is uh, 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 building a, a church of Jew and Gentiles. We're not told the response to that. But then he goes to the mall. Then he goes to the marketplace. Probably walks around. Probably has conversations with people. He probably is listening. He's trying to learn what's, what, what makes people tick. Uh, that word, as I said, disputed is the word of dialogue, of questions and answers here. Uh, he went to the Agora, the marketplace, and, and, and there, uh, that, that would be a popular meeting place for discussions, for cultural activities. Uh, you would see entertainment there, like attracting jugglers, uh, sword swallowers, beggars, fishmongers, philosophers. It's where the people hung out. And so that's where he went. And that's where he went. And so he does. He does. He doesn't just see. He doesn't just feel. He does. There's action there. And he's having conversations. He's listening. His spiritual ears are perked up. And he's not just listening for what's on the surface. He's listening for the, for the, for the, uh, the cores of the heart here. And then he, you can see as he takes responsibility here and he trusts God with the point of different, makes different points of contact, the synagogue, and then the marketplace. With and then verse eighteen, God starts bringing people around him. A buzz starts to happen. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, talked to him, and some said, "What will this babbler, this seed picker, literally say?" Other some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, Epicureans were kind of like deists. They thought they're gods, but they kind of leave the world alone. And our goal in life is very similar to what Buddhism teaches. It's to be able to uh, be free from suffering. Be free from suffering. So that's what they made their goal in life, to find ways to be free from suffering. And they didn't really believe in a personal God or the gods that the Greeks did uh, in the same way that um, the culture said because they understood that the gods wanted to be away from human beings because human beings are where things suffer. And that's how they operated in life. And then there were the Stoics. These were people who kind of went the other way and saw God in everything. They were more like pantheists here. And um, uh, they, they looked at the world as, well, it is what it is. You just live in harmony with it and uh, just, just kind of bear a, 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 a uh, trying to kind of keep a, keep a, a good face and everything. Um, but it's, the world's kind of fatalistic. You're born, you live, bad things happen to you, and then you die, and that's it. Both of them really didn't see an afterlife very much here. 
And so Paul is dialoguing with them. And they say, this guy's a seed picker. And what they meant by that is, he seems to have things from different philosophies that he's just picking. And he doesn't have this holistic worldview like we have. And he's just a vagabond just passing through. But there's something interesting. He's telling us about this God Jesus and the Anastasis, the resurrection. And so verse 19, they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what is what, it, what this new doctrine wherever you speak is. They took him, it may have been to the Acropolis, it may not have been there. The Areopagus really was the council of people. Uh, a, lot of people a lot of scholars think he didn't actually go to the Mars Hill Acropolis there because there wouldn't have been the room that he needed with all the buildings there, but they just went before the council of these philosophers. And it doesn't matter, he spoke, he speaks, and they have this question. They have this question. And so not only does Paul do here, but Paul says, Paul says, and so Paul finds a point of contact here in his sermon that he gives. And this is, this is, the, this is the interesting thing here. The Word of God is the master chess player here. The Word of God provides the answers for total truth. Nothing else can do that. Nothing else can shove the universe into the box that the Word of God can. Because those boxes are too small that these other worldviews try to shove the universe and the, and the reason for why we exist into. And so Paul finds a point of contact. And he deals with, simultaneously, the beliefs of the Stoics, the beliefs of the Epicureans, the beliefs of the common culture here, by uh, uh, bringing in some of their own poets and truths that they say to believe and showing the inconsistencies with that, and then showing the truth of who God is. So he finds a point of contact. And the first thing, in verse 24 we see, is that he tells them that God is the creator of the universe. That things didn't just happen. The God who made the world and everything, and He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and He doesn't live in temples built by hands. That's a pretty brave thing to say in a city that was masked with temples, right? That's, that's very different from the Epicurean emphasis that said things just happened by chance, or the pantheism said that, uh, uh, the Stoics said that everything, God's in everything here. Instead, he says that God's a personal creator of everything that exists and the, and the Lord of everything he's made. And so it would be ludicrous to believe that if God made everything and, and he's over everything, that he lives in these little shrines that human beings have built. You're limiting the Creator, Paul says. You're imprisoning Him with these man-made buildings that your hands have made. And Paul doesn't see that as possible. He wants them to understand that. He says, I walked through, uh, um, uh, as I walked through your city, I saw all these altars, and then I see this altar that says to the unknown God, just in case you missed one and you didn't want to make him tick them off. And I want to tell you who the unknown God is. He's the one true God. He's the one you missed. He's the one you're missing. And so he says, God has created the universe. The second thing he tells him is, God is the sustainer of life. In verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Our God is not dependent on everyone. The idols are all dependent on you, bringing them sacrifices and engaging with them, appeasing them. Our God is not dependent on anyone. He's self-existent. In fact, he's the one where all of you have life and the very breath you're breathing now is from him. He sustains life. He's created that. And if He's the one who gives life, then what does He need? He doesn't need anything. 
and, and we can't tame God. We can't re, re, uh, reduce Him to the, to the level of a pet who's dependent on us, Paul says. Um, he's not a human being in the way that we are. We depend on God. He doesn't depend on us is what he wants them to understand. So he flips the tables here. And then he tells them that God's the ruler of the nations. In verse 26 through 28, he's the ruler of the nations. From one blood, from one man. Think of Adam. He made every nation to inhabit the earth here. And he tells us that, that a human existence is because of God. And if God is the creator, he hasn't just created the world we live in, he's created us as well. We're dependent on him, and he's in charge, he's the king. And verse 27, he made us, in verse 27, that they should seek the Lord. So he made us for relationship. He made humanity for relationship. He is he's the one who, in, in him we live and move and have our being. And he quotes from one of their poets. He wants them to understand that God has stepped into our world in time and space to give us relationship with Him. But then He's going to tell them how that happens. If God is the one who ultimately is the one who who began humanity, we are His offspring uh, through God's creation of Adam and all those who 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 have come from there, then we need to know that we are accountable to God. He made us. And so we're responsible to Him. And so he says that God is the judge of the world. Look at verse 30. In the times of this ignorance, walking in our own ways, God is winked at, overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because, and here's how he's bringing it to Jesus, because He has appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained whereof he has given assurance to all men, he's proved this truth, and that he has raised him from the dead. So he says, God's a judge of the world. God's a judge of the world. You suppress the truth. And God is now in a season of mercy. And He's offering His Son who has stood in their place and He commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because there is a certainty of coming, of coming judgment. Notice this, this judgment He describes. It'll be universal. No one's exempt. Right? He says this, He'll judge the world. Second, how will it be judged? It will be judged righteously. It will be judged with justice. From the one who made all things and sees all things and knows all things. All secrets are to be revealed. And thirdly, it'll be very clear and definite, won't it? Because the day has been set. And the judge has been appointed. And His name is Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't get that far. But we know who he's talking about. And He has given judgment to this man, this Son, and He has given proof of this publicly to everybody by, say, by, by saying, by raising Him from the dead, if Jesus is risen from the dead, this is proof that what God has said is truth. All nations have been created from the first Adam by God, and all the nations will be judged by the last Adam. That's what Paul is saying here. If you're wondering what he means in Acts chapter... 17 and verse 30, he's commanded all men to repent. You can look at his sermon in Acts chapter 14 to Lister where he tells them, uh, why are you doing these things? We're men of the same nature with you. We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Which is what he says in 1 Thessalonians. The God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in him. He says, uh, the, the mark of, uh, of, of the thing that, that Paul rejoices in with the Thessalonians is that they turn to God from what? 
from idols. From idols. Now, at the end of this speech here, the members of the council who said, we want to investigate this teaching, must have understood, whether they liked it or not, that they were no longer investigating Paul's and his teachings about his religion, or rather, they were under investigation. They were under investigation. And so, it's, as, you, as you look at this, these scriptures here, you can see the different responses of it. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, hmm, we'll hear you again of this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, verse 34, not all, but some, certain men clung to him and believed. Among the which was Dionysius, Dionysius the Areopagite, so he's one of the men in this council, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. See, Paul saw, he felt, he did, and he said God's truth. And God uses it. God uses it. The results might not be immediate. Your results may take time. But when we talk to those who are not curious for Jesus, not hungry for the gospel of Jesus, who are honestly the majority of the people in our world today, in our Western culture, they are the most difficult to engage They may be loyal to a non-Christian faith and suspicious of others. They may be skeptical of all faiths and maybe Christianity in particular. They may be completely oblivious to Jesus in in, in, in the faith. But it is our goal through the Word of God, through our compassion, through seeing through spiritual eyes, and through taking the initiative to engage with God here in His work, through His Word, to arouse curiosity of who God is and let God use that to bring them to Him. You know, Paul Peter shares this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter describes the world that he's living in and he, he writes to churches that are being persecuted. And by the way, as our world becomes more and more secular in this way, it's, that's how the early church was. You're going to see these things more and more and that's where the early church really began to, uh, when, when the world is hostile to Christ, that's when the early church really saw God work, didn't it? Through persecution. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 14, Paul, Peter says this, But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and you be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But he says, But set apart, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. If we're going to have a Christmas party the next day, and I want to tell people the true meaning of Christmas to my unbelieving friends. But that day before, I do something unethical in my business. How am I going to tell them the true meaning of Christmas, right? Or kids, maybe there's people that God's put on your heart to witness to at school. And you want to talk to them about Jesus. But the day before, you're cheating on your test. How effective are you going to be? 
And that's what Paul's, Peter's saying here in 1 Peter 3, is that we need to live a life that lives in accordance, in a line with the truth that we declare. And Peter says this, they may have bad things to say about you, but they can't say anything about who you are living for. They might not like your message of who Jesus is, but they can't say you're inconsistent with it. And really, that's how God moves skeptics to himself more than anything. There's a man who some of you may be familiar with in the 1970s and 80s. His name was uh, Francis Schaeffer, and he, uh, he was a weird guy. He wore knickers. He kind of had a weird way of talking. Uh, a little speech impediment. Always had a little... Uh, his hair in a certain way, and and uh, he he began to see culture shift in the 70s and 80s, and the skepticism rising. And he knew if he was going to be effective in evangelism and turning skeptics to disciples of Jesus Christ, that he knew he needed to listen, and he knew he needed to have a display of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does, as well as conversations with him. And so what he did is he moved to Switzerland in the Alps. And he started a, 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 a home called Le Abri. And there he invited people who had questions about Christianity or skeptical to come and live there. And he fed them and, and they, they saw the Christian community that was there. And he would answer their questions with an open Bible over the table. And he saw many people come to Jesus Christ. In fact, a few years ago there was a, 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 um, a conference hosted in Bangor called Why Jesus that maybe some of you attended. And one of the people that was there um, uh, shared uh, how uh, he had been one of those people who, had, who was skeptical, an atheist, agnostic at best, skeptical, and was willing to sit down and just observe and listen and ha- see the life of Francis Schaeffer and his family and hear them listen to him and his objections and talk through them and share their lives. And that's what God used to change his heart. What we need to understand is those who are skeptical, it's going to take more time, isn't it? Generally, more or less here. And it's our goal to arouse a fragrance, a curiosity in who Jesus Christ is through credible answers to their questions, but also a life that's lived in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uh, engages with his audience, but he had listened for a long time. He had walked around. His heart was grieved. He, he saw. He felt. He did. He said. And, and he was able to answer the questions. Where are you? Who, who have you been listening to? What got you here? Here. And why was he able to do that? Because a, few, uh, a couple years later, he's in Corinth. And he writes a chapter, a letter to the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 1, he lays out where man is coming from. And why man thinks the way he does. And he's able to walk that out. And that's what he does here in Acts chapter 17. What I want you to see very quickly here is Paul has this grid in his mind through which he processes culture and worldviews. And he tells us in Romans 1.19 that we all have access to God, to evidence for God through creation. What could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His nature uh, have been clearly perceived. By the creation of the world, things that he's made in Romans 1, 19 through 20. The problem is, we all suppress the truth. Our tendency is to hold down the truth, the evidence for God from creation. We know God, but we don't honor God or give thanks to God. In Romans 1, 18, Romans 1, 21, Romans 1, 28, 
uh, we, we like to push God out of the out of the out of the out of the circle. It's like a it's like uh, it's like a criminal wanting to believe that the policeman doesn't exist. He's running away from the policeman because he wants to get away from accountability. And as a result, Paul says we exchange truth for the lie, and we create idols to take the place of God. Romans one twenty three exchange the glory of God for idols. Romans one twenty five change the truth of God for a lie. Okay, this explains every single worldview, every single way of life apart from Christ. And God gives us up to the consequences of our idols, which is a mind that is closed to God. Romans one twenty one. they knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became empty, futile in their thinking. Romans one twenty eight. God gives them up to a debased mind, a depraved mind. And then... Because our mind and our behavior is so connected, what results from that shutting down of the mind is wicked behavior. God gives them up to the consequences of their idols, to dishonorable behavior. Romans one twenty four, He gave them up to the lust of their heart to this. Romans one twenty six, He gave them up to dishonorable passions. Romans one twenty eight, He gave them up to a debased mind to do with things that should not be done. And so, friends, as you're interacting with people, understand this is the framework that they're operating with. They've exchanged the truth for a lie. It doesn't matter if they call themselves an atheist or a Muslim, right? No matter what, they have exchanged their way, the way that God has provided of understanding Him and who He is for their own way. And even if they're an atheist, they're worshiping something else, right? They've exalted an idol in its place. And we don't have time to go through the, uh, the next part of these things this morning. I'll pick them up uh, next week here. But um, uh, uh, there are some principles out of this that will help us engage with skeptics here. Some of you used to be skeptics, didn't you? You know what we see from this passage? Is God loves skeptics too. The heart of God for souls to come to Him, no matter how hard those hearts are, is seen by Paul's presentation of this message. Turn back to God. Turn to Him. You know, some of you who were skeptics, it took a long time, didn't it? It took the Word of God and it took the lives of believers and it took people interacting and engaging with you over time to see... You know what? Holy Spirit opened my eyes to this truth. Dennis uh, uh, Small can share his his um, his his testimony, and many of you have heard it. How uh, he really didn't have any interest in God at all, and God used some people with concern and compassion who didn't have all the answers, but had the truth of God's word and had a life that lived in line with God's word. And God used it to bring in a faith in Christ. There's others in this room too, I'm sure, who God has, has, has brought along the way. And friends, when you see the hardest heart, remember one of the greatest skeptics in the whole New Testament is the one who's preaching this sermon in Acts 17. Was there anyone who was more hostile to Jesus than Paul? But doesn't that show you the love Jesus has? To soften, to shine, to warm, to bring people to Jesus. And so friends, as you know your skeptic friends, understand that some of this might be smokescreen. They're running away from God and they know it. 
And God might use you through your love for them and through your care and through the truth of His Word of God to bring them to help you make disciples of skeptics. Have faith in the confidence and the truth of God's Word. It is the master chess player. Holy Spirit is the master chess player behind it. God can use the Word of God because no other worldview can fit into the box of the universe. The Word of God holds it all and gives answers to everything that pertains to life and godliness. So we as a church are called to build lives with purpose. Don't back down from skeptics. Be bold in the Word of God and live in line with the Gospel and share the truth of the Gospel. Jesus will use it. Jesus will honor it. Let's pray. Lord, we are to be people who are shed, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. And now, as we have gathered together and we've heard your word and we've sung together, we pray that you would build us up through the word of God. But we pray, Lord, that now as we scatter, we would be people um, who have our feet shod with these, with these shoes of peace. The shoes of you uh, uh, of the good news of your desire and your plan to make people and r- rightly related to you through the Word of God, through the promise of Jesus Christ. And I wonder this morning, Lord, if there are hearts here this morning who are who are uh, uh, need answers. Um, they uh, haven't had things uh, clearly explained. Um, uh, or they're just simply uh, and obviously uh, running away from you in a in a obvious uh, way. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to bring them to yourself. Um, you have no desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do so through the faithful witness of your people. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.